Today's episode of Growing Pains with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by the It's the Economy Stupid blog. That's David's blog. It's a blog about economic development in Atlantic Canada. He recently put out a Thanksgiving edition on the 12th of this month called The Rational Optimist. It's a Matt Ridley reference. You can get the blog on davidwcampbell.com. On the 19th, that's Monday, we're releasing the Transformational Leadership first episode. We're really excited. This is a collaboration with the Chapman Group. It's hosted by Tanya Chapman, an HR expert in the region. We're talking about disruption, how to unlock leaders, how to transform teams. We're really excited about this podcast coming to you live with episode one on the 19th. We've also wrapped up the Essential Talent Podcast. That was a podcast collaboration with the University of New Brunswick's MBA program. We heard from over 20 MBA graduates about what they think about COVID-19, the skills they're bringing to our regional workforce, and their ambition as they come to graduate. It was the first podcast that we released in the format we're calling a pod pitch. It's fascinating to hear someone talk about their experience in their own words. We loved doing it with these MBA graduates from all over the world with their diverse opinions, experience, and talents. We encourage all of you to check out Tech Talks with Kathy Simpson. We're all wondering what the technology landscape looks like post-pandemic. During the pandemic, we want to know what's on offer for students who are coming in to the technology field in the region. And Kathy Simpson, the CEO of Tech Impact, does a great job at hosting that podcast. You'll find it on all major podcast platforms. Let's get to the show. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Growing Pains with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network. Some quick network news before we get to episode 25. The first episode of Transformational Leadership is live. That went out Monday. Tanya Chapman walks us through a really fascinating framework for how to think about HR in times of disruption, how to think about the podcast that we're producing as we speak. It's a fascinating discussion. It's a great framework. It proves why she's an industry leader and why we're here listening to her speak about innovation in HR, how to unlock leaders and transform teams. Yesterday, that's Tuesday, we also released Sensory Friendly Solutions Episode 5. That's with Carol Stock-Kranowitz. This one was special. Carol has sold over 1 million copies of her book, The Out-of-Sync Child. Very few of us get to the point where we're selling books in the seven-figure range. And she's been blurred by the New York Times, the Washington Post, several others. It's a really fascinating discussion with a thoughtful person who saw a gap in the market and filled it with a really impressive document. And that's been followed with The InSync Child, which is a series that followed and parents around the world, families around the world, are benefiting from the work that Carol is doing. 
Check out both Transformational Leadership with Tanya Chapman on any podcast platform and also tune into Sensory Friendly Solutions. Okay, let's get to the show. Welcome, listeners, to another edition of Growing Pains, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlantic Canada. Today is October 20, 2020, and we are pleased to have back my old sidekick, the owner of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are back together again. Good morning, Matt George. Dave, I'm back. What a pleasure. Congrats on number 25. We had to have... uh our guest on the top right of our screen for episode 25. It only feels right. Congrats on 25 episodes. Congrats on a big download milestone. It's been fun to now be a listener slash producer. So happy to be back. Yeah, it's hard to believe we've had 25 of these. That's great. And it is, I think, um, appropriate that Dr. Herb Emery would come back for the 25th. He's been, he's probably been on half of them throughout the (laughs) the time we've been on. Uh, But he does have a new book that he's collaborated on called Moment of Truth, How to Think About Alberta's Future. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Herb Emery. Oh, fun to be back. So I I read this book. I, I went through it fairly quickly, but it is a fairly easy read. It, it, it covers a lot of the old grievances, a lot of the stuff that's been covered in the media. There's a few new interesting ideas in there. But I did want to ask you... Um, First of all, what's the, what was the genesis of this book? Why now? I mean, it's got a number of well-known authors. Donald Savoie has written a chapter in there. Preston Manning, Jack Mintz, Tom Flanagan, and of course, uh, Herb Emery. No, no good economics book these days would uh, would be successful without a chapter by Herb Emery. So, what was the genesis of the book? Why did they? Why did you and your colleagues decide to write this now? Well, what's interesting is that. Around 2005, for the centennial of Alberta and Saskatchewan, I was doing a fair amount of work on the formation of the province and why was it distinct from Saskatchewan and why didn't they follow the original proposal of one big province called Buffalo. And at the time, that led us into looking at a literature on uh, merging provinces. And we weren't allowed to look at the Maritimes because that was considered a threat. So we were doing the discussion by proxy, looking at could we have Alberta and Saskatchewan merge? And everyone told us we were nuts when we started. And by the end, they said it makes total sense. But in a lot of cases, what we were picking up on was there was a general dissatisfaction with the way things were being governed initially regionally. But then coming back uh, to the federal government, when Harper was in, there was sort of peace in the West because they felt like the policies, even though they didn't always go their way, were at least working in the right direction. And there was hope for things like pipelines coming in. When the Trudeau election came along on the heels of Notley, uh, wiping out the Jim Prentice balanced government approach that had been proposed, things turned sort of sharp to the left and you got an internal divide coming out in Alberta. Uh, Saskatchewan suddenly looked like the place of stability and sound business sense with Brad Wall. And then you just started to see this treatment from central Canada that just as things were starting to get bad in Alberta, there was just a sense that it went from 
Ottawa was tone deaf and not paying attention. Like there was no bailout like for autos or Bombardier or anyone else. And all of a sudden they're starting to do things publicly, like make statements like oil's a sunset industry. And that starts to wake up the old forces. So separatism in the West, those movements go back to uh, basically around 1911 over the failed reciprocity agreement. They keep rebounding once in a while when things are getting rough, uh, particularly in the 1980s, the first time oil severely collapsed. And now it's come back. But the interesting part is that the millennials in Alberta identify as Canadian nationalists. They don't sympathize with the Alberta government or the oldsters that uh, believe that the hydrocarbon economy is important. So they have their own civil war going on internally. And so what's interesting about this book is it sort of contains a lot of establishment interests. And one reason I think I'm in there is because I would agree to work on these topics. I've always taken on what people consider to be the dumb topics, the heretical ones. And the fact that I'm not in Alberta is the most unusual thing about my authorship. Donald Savoie was in there, which makes sense because he's a high profile scholar. But I think that I was sort of brought in just so that they could find someone to work on it who had some knowledge of Alberta. But in the media, the reviews of the book identify me as a New Brunswicker, which I found funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. You're you're an adoptive uh, New Brunswicker. We appreciate that. Born in London, raised in Alberta, and retiring or semi-retiring in New Brunswick. How's that? An economist nomad, yeah. <laughs> so I think one of the challenges, and maybe that's sort of driving some of the angst among young people, is I, I don't know... I'm not clear what the Alberta economy is going to look like in the, in 10 or 20 years. And I think, so for example, if you, if I look at Newfoundland and Labrador and I'm a little closer to that, but I kind of understand what they're proposing. They're saying, look, let's, let's get a lot of uh, exploration out of the way right now in the next two or three to five years. And let's have a couple of more big finds and let's produce oil, just pump it out of the ground for the next 20 years or so. But by 2040, in the 2040s, by 2050 at the latest, we'll be, you know, for the most part, unless there's demand globally, we, we assume that, that uh, Newfoundland is going to use that period of time to transition. I'm not clear what Alberta looks like in 20 years. Is it, is it more tourism and beef cattle? Can you replace a $100 billion high-value royalty-creating industry like oil and gas with a little more agriculture? Uh, Premier Kenny talked this week about blue hydrogen, that idea of converting natural gas to hydrogen and then using hydrogen. And he's even talked about SMR stealing kind of a little bit of New Brunswick thunder uh, and getting small modular reactors. But I don't, I don't like to me, that just looks like they become New Brunswick, you know, fighting with Ontario for manufacturing, fighting with Quebec for agriculture, fight like how, where, how do you replace a hundred billion dollar high value royalty industry in 20 years? So, do you have any thoughts? I, the book didn't cover that. The book covers a lot of um, issues, which we'll get into, but it doesn't cover what Alberta's going to look like in 20 uh, or 30 years. So I have a lot of thoughts on that because we've spent 15 years trying to convince the Alberta government to save and invest the energy royalties because the economy that you're describing beyond oil has always been coming. So if you go back to the 1960s, 1970s, the oil sands were the diversification project funded by the federal government and the provinces. And the idea was that if we had an infinite supply of oil, we didn't have to manage it like an exhaustible resource. 
Now, if you have a depleting resource, what you're supposed to do is treat the revenue not as income, but as wealth. So you transition from physical oil in the ground and you put it into stocks and bonds. And then that gives you a revenue stream in future that allows you to be sustainable. But when you get a mindset that the price of oil will go up forever, which was back in the Jeff Rubin peak oil days, uh, or you believe you have an infinite supply, which is what happened when they wrote up the reserves of Alberta as the third largest in the world, I think, you had this kind of boomtown mentality that this will go on forever. And so when we were coming out and saying things like oil prices will come down or at least stop growing, we used to get laughed at uh, because people didn't believe that was going to happen. And so now what they didn't recognize and we kept trying to point out to them was what was driving the Alberta economy wasn't oil production. What was driving Alberta was investment in oil development, <coughs> exploration development, uh, because people had high expectations of future oil prices. But we knew that once that price of oil stopped growing, what happens in an economy like Alberta or New Brunswick with uh, forest-based products and fish is that the labor demand stops growing and the economy starts adjusting to its long run, which is uh, much wages much more in line with the rest of Canada, not as rapid growth, and in fact, slower growth, which people have misinterpreted as the resource curse. But we knew that the slowdown was always coming, and we knew that the levels of employment that were part of the construction and investment weren't going to be part of the production economy. And so Newfoundland has the same problem, that what they're trying to sustain is the investment boom, not the oil production part. Oil production isn't a big employer because it's so capital intensive. Uh, New Brunswick is further ahead because it has refining, like having the oil, the crude to produce isn't where the profits are in the long run. It's the refining margin if you're good at it. But New Brunswick seems hell bent on making sure Irving Oil is not competitive. So that will drive a lot of that to other refiners that don't face the same pressures. So that's a nice pivot, Herb, but I'm not going to go there. We'll go there <laughs> in another another podcast. It's an important issue for sure. Um was there any talk, I mean, I think there has been based on what my read of the national media, but hasn't there been any talk over the years of at least a modest sales tax in Alberta and then you could salt away more of those royalties? Because it seems to me that, yes, it was kind of nice that you didn't have a sales tax in Alberta, but what was the point? Every other province had one. So the, the sales tax in my mind has a symbolic role in Alberta that it's sort of a dividend of having a business-friendly, uh, high-performing economy. When we were pushing for the sales, for the savings program, a la, like in Norway, the problem was Alberta's taxes would have to come up in the short run so that they could backfill the budget in a sustainable way to pay for healthcare and everything else. And then that would allow them to salt away, as you put it, the energy royalties and invest them. And when we first had one estimate I liked in 1999, they, if we had took 30% of uh, energy royalties, saved and invest them, but had the income and sales tax to backfill, by 2015, the revenue earned on that fund would have been enough to eliminate income tax in Alberta. In 1999, we didn't do it because everyone said 2015 is way off. It's not worth it. And so instead of doing it back then when it would have been relatively painless, everyone kept, as Matt would say, doubling down. So the economy's overheating and fueled. Everyone wanted their money up front. What Albertans made a choice to do was take all those energy revenues and use it to make the price of services low. But then what they're dealing with today, and which is why the sales tax is a different issue, 
is that it inflated the salary costs throughout the public sector. And so now what you have is if you're bringing in a sales tax, you're really bringing it in to salvage some of the highest public sector incomes in Canada. And the alternative is you to listen to commentators like Ken Boozenkuhl. He points out that if they even had wages at the average of the rest of Canada, you don't need a sales tax and you don't need as much tax revenue as they currently have. So what they're mired in right now is a civil war over is it up to the government to defend the public service and value jobs and wages, same rhetoric you have here, or do they have tons of money and they should really be able to make a go of it without the sales tax and the sales tax just prevents them from doing things better. And that's where they're kind of stuck and everyone's pointing ideological fingers, but by the time they resolve it, they're going to be sunk. But I, I, I don't know. It seems to me that they might have to move in some kind of direction. They need some more stable source of revenue. I mean, I understand the cost thing. I did a project in Alberta a few years ago with the insurance sector. Uh, and what was happening back then, this was about a decade ago, is uh, a lot of the insurance jobs were leaving Alberta and going elsewhere in Canada. So if you, you know, if you broke your, if your car broke down in Red Deer and you made a call to your insurance person, it was in Moncton. Uh, and that's because you had to pay sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year for just a general uh, insurance clerk in Alberta. So I actually talked to the deputy minister in charge of economic development in Alberta at the time, and he was like, "Oh, okay, that's kind of neat." You know, when I actually told him that a lot of the back office insurance work for Alberta is actually being done in New Brunswick, he didn't seem to be bothered by that. But I think now they're looking at what kind of new industries can we attract here. But you're right; if costs are inflated across the board, not just the public sector and the private sector. So, for example, if you're if if you have to get pay sixty thousand dollars for an insurance clerk in Edmonton, uh, and then you go in and slash public sector wages, what does that do to the overall situation? So, I don't know that it's as, as easy as just cutting public sector wages. Although I do think public sector wages are notoriously difficult to cut. There, you can try to hold the line, but to actually cut them, uh, I think is problematic. But so, do you think there's no? It's a non-starter. This idea of some sort of value-added tax or sales tax? No, they're going to have one, I believe, in a certain amount of time. Like most economists support moving to an HST of a 5 to 7% in Alberta. I would throw myself in that camp. But the problem in Alberta that comes with an energy royalty or energy sector, and New Brunswick has it with equalization and other federal money, is you don't have a fiscal anchor to restrain the public sector spending. And so if you just keep bringing revenue in, what it tends to do is it gets capitalized into your collective agreements and everything else. And you now have some, with oil, it was one-time money resulted in permanent spending increases. And the salary escalation, like this, <laughs> when you look at how much pay in universities went up in Alberta from when I started to when I left, I think it's a factor of five over 25 years. So it was not what you would call a, a pleasant increase. Then you take the housing market. I bought a house by the university in 1993 for $130,000. I sold it for close to 600 when I left in 2016. So the reason people are moving out west is if you can get into the housing market in a boom thing, you have a lot of wealth. And then everyone starts borrowing against that appreciated value. And so why don't they move back to New Brunswick? It's because they can't sell the house and retire all those debts. So you start to get golden handcuffs when you're in those economies. You don't want to give up the salary because you're not going to earn as much anywhere else. My pay coming here is 25% lower than it was in Alberta. So you can tell me that the housing market arbitrages away. It's not actually true. 
I have a much nicer house with the same carrying cost of everything that I had in Alberta. But the advantage that's purported to be here is not as great as everyone thinks in terms of cost of living. And what we're seeing through COVID now is with the escalation in food prices and everything else, that advantage is even being further eroded away. So there's a lot of sense in which we're living off mythology about what's great about one economy versus another. But Alberta was really the opportunity is what hooked everyone in is that you could expect to get ahead out there. Whereas when you come back to even Ontario, you're sort of feeling like you're stuck in line waiting for your chance and you don't leave because you don't want to lose your spot in the line. But you ran out to Alberta, there was just stuff happening. You could wind up as a CEO of a small company and then you got stock options and the excitement that was out there was unbelievable. And now it's been replaced by total depression. So Herb, Herb, let me jump in here, Dave, if I could, because this is a, a good opportunity to do some myth busting. If I understood that right, Herb, if we played overrated, underrated with you and said that using the cost of living as a reason to come back to the East coast or come to the East coast for the first time, all in all, would you say that's overrated to use that argument? Did I understand that right? Overrated with one nuance. So mm-hmm. for $600,000 in New Brunswick, you get a pretty swanky house, um, but your cost of carrying it is extremely high. So I think the way to, I would put it is the cost of carrying my $400,000 house in Fredericton is like having a million and a half dollar house in Calgary. Hmm. The cost. Mm-hmm. So, the property tax here is more than double what I was paying in Alberta on a same value property. So, but yeah, but you like guys like you and I love to parse words. Is your absolute tax bill higher here? Absolutely. Just, so you pay more for a price for a house that's worth less. <laughs> yeah. Because it's my, I did some work nationally on this a few years ago and the tax rates were much higher here, but the actual tax bill uh wasn't so you know again you're a specific case maybe and maybe i'm wrong about this but even if you look at the survey of household spending if you look at the amount of tax property taxes paid in new brunswick on a typical house it's actually slightly lower than it is elsewhere in the country in absolute terms not as a share of of the value of the house so on a four hundred thousand dollar house i'm paying let's call it five thousand a year in new brunswick versus 2100 in calgary 2100 in Calgary for the $600,000 house? Uh, yeah. 2100. Let's call it 400000 400, when it was worth that, it would have been 2100 Okay, so in absolute terms, you are paying twice as much. Yeah, and not, it's because a- in Calgary, a lot of it's based on we had the scale economies from the population size and the property tax was determined largely locally and they were putting a huge burden on to business tax downtown. Uh, that's why they have a 30% vacancy rate today. But I want I want to get back to the young people, the millennials, you know, because Matt is on the call here. So um, if back to my earlier point, if there was a pathway, if young people saw that, hey, we're going to, you know, we're looking to sort of ramp up oil now, get some pipelines built. But we see by 2040 or 2045 or 2050 that we'll be winding down just like everybody wants us to. Do you think that would help ease their pain? Because, again, I haven't seen any clear indication of where Alberta wants to go in terms of oil production. Uh, Stephen Harper talked about 2100, you know, but that's so passe now, right? That's so circa 2015. Um, so do you think, how do you keep the young people happy 
understanding that they are living in an oil economy. And if you just choked it off tomorrow, you know, it would, it would only exacerbate the problems. Well, it, I think you don't keep them happy. And what you're seeing in Alberta is they're exiting already. The under 25 group is migrating out. If you look at expectations of staying whenever there's a recession in Alberta, the young start to say things like, I don't expect to be here in five years. And they're going to BC, they're going to Saskatchewan, ironically now, and they're going to Ontario. So the way the uh, Alberta economy adjusts is when you don't need people, you make it miserable enough, a bunch will leave and you get adjustment through your housing market. So housing prices in 81 fell 50% in one year. And they're poised for a 20% crash, according to CMHC, in the coming year. So this population in and out adjustment is what they count on. And then when the boom comes back on, what you see is that the wage stimulus is so high, people come back. So you don't have to treat them nice. That was the hard part is if you're stuck. When you were saying that is, is what's the beef? What's the main beef in Alberta with my cohort? Well, you're, the main beef of your cohort is they're suddenly struggling to find those high-paying jobs that drew them out in the first place because mm-hmm. you're last hired, first fired. And now you're going from you were, thought you had a trajectory up in sales in an oil and gas company, and instead you're sort of now looking around for a service sector job, which COVID has just hammered. And so what you're looking at is the younger unemployment rate is extremely high. And, you know, high school kids were making 17 bucks an hour. in a lot of these jobs and so they're not getting those anymore the university students are getting it and then the biggest problem you have to remember is the psychology of a bust is that once the tipping point hits and people start losing their optimism that we can come out of this it starts to go in a really bad spiral and it's solved by people leaving if they can but the group that's going to be stuck are sort of more Dave and my uh, generation mm-hmm. who are locked into a house that's no longer worth anywhere near what it was when we bought it. And we can't just easily find a job to replace the income. We need to carry it and we can't sell it because we're going to take a huge capital loss. And so the whole thing, every when you look at these negative adjustments and there used to be a bigger literature on this, it's the housing market that leaves everyone stuck. So if I had any advice for a millennial over the coming five years, do not buy property rent because mm-hmm. your mobility is really your ticket to success in the future. What year does that start to really take hold? When does that beef start to really reach its boiling point in Alberta? Because if I think back to to my experience in my family, so my brother graduates high school 2008. He spends two years in Alberta before starting university because it's still boom time. And for all that I can tell from being back here when he's there, he's spending money like an NBA draft pick those first two years. So is that when do we really start to see that beef beef start to start to crystallize because he's still out there as of probably 2010-ish before he comes home and he was he was making a, a lot of money as a very unskilled 18-year-old. Well, the running joke used to be the Ford McMurray trucks that the kids would buy. So you leave yeah. high school, you're making 150K in the oil sands. And these trucks would show up in town that were sort of jacked up eight feet. They got silver all over them. Yep. And the first time there's a downturn, those trucks are cheap, up for sale cheap. So young guys like to spend because it's a lot of fun to have a ton of money and all the access to toys. You have a lot of things like lifestyle in the West that, again, the problem is – 
people who expect the incomes are going to keep growing forever tend to have a very high carrying cost in daily living. So they'll have club memberships. They carry a lot of debt. They're turning their vehicles over. And that's, again, fueling the cycle of why Alberta looks so robust is it's a high consumption economy. No one's saving anything. And the way they're saving is they're hoping that their house price will go up so that when they cash in their chips and move back to the more stable place, they can sort of haul out a lot of equity. And that was sort of the game I played in moving east, that it was a good time to sort of the market was peaking. And so if you were going to get out of Alberta real estate, it didn't seem like a bad time. Now, my wife's mad because the price hung on for a few more years. And so she doesn't think I timed the peak very well. She doesn't think I'm a very good economist because I keep I seem to be wrong a lot. <laughs> so, Herb, um, just quickly, do you do, is there an estimate of when Alberta is going to come out of this, or is it totally dependent on the price of oil? Like, is there? I understand they're in an, an issue right now, but they've always come out of it in the past within a fairly short period of time. Well, maybe not eighty-one, but so is there? Are we talking twenty twenty-two, twenty twenty-three? Like, when is Alberta going to be back to normal, or it won't be back to normal without higher oil prices? I think what we're looking at is to get to the same point they're at today, you're looking at 2040. If you get another price cycle like they had through the 1990s and 2000s. 2040, 20, 20 years from now. Yeah, at the, at the earliest. Okay, so that you know, brings the, us- the old bumper sticker out there is, God, please give us another oil boom and we not promise not to piss it away this time. It's like, how many chances do you think you're going to get at these commodity cycles? And Alberta has failed now on three or four, depending how you count, three or four major price cycles. To, they have failed to capitalize in the long-run economy. You keep bringing up about diversification and sustainability. So it's an oil town or, sorry, a mining town right now. That's how it's been managed over the long term. So I was in a museum in Edmonton last September, and I remember seeing that bumper sticker, so maybe that's a metaphor. Maybe now it's into the museum and not on the vehicles anymore. But I want to come back to the book because that kind of really illustrates what we're talking about here. So when I read the book, it reminded me a little bit about that big mother alien in the movie Aliens, where she's just lashing out at everything right there because she can't get free of her chains. Uh, you know, this book, you know, complains about RCMP, it complains about the Canada Pension Plan, it complains about interprovincial trade, it complains about Quebec, it complains about Ontario, it complains about Atlantic Canada, it complains about the Laurentian elites, it complains about equalization, it, it, it just, it's uh, the Senate, right? There's about 50 things in here that, that, that the authors are targeting. And it does seem to me a bit scattershot, but the first question I have for you on that is around the relationship between Alberta and the rest of the country. So when Hydro-Quebec came in and proposed to buy NB Power, uh, as you will recall, um, there was tremendous public backlash. And so I had a look at some of the survey data, I was provided some of the survey data. And one of the things they did is they asked people, well, why are you so hostile to selling NB Power? It's going to get rid of its debt. It's going to provide stable, blah, 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 blah. So they made all the arguments and people still said, absolutely not. But when they asked them why, the answers invariably came back because we don't. Quebec gets everything, always gets everything it wants, and now it's coming in. It wants our precious utility, and this is our one chance to poke Quebec in the eye. That that essentially was was the response of a lot of New Brunswickers, even though poking Quebec in the eye actually hit them in the pocketbook for billions. Um, so I'm almost thinking now that that there's almost the same 
maybe not as bad, but the same kind of idea with Alberta. Look, Alberta, you've been killing it for so long. Our young people have to go out there for jobs. You know, every time we read the national media, we hear somebody complaining about the gold-plated services in Atlantic Canada funded by Alberta oil money. Uh, maybe now it's kind of nice that you're taking a hit, and now you know how New Brunswick feels, or you know how Nova Scotia feels. So, again, that's that's irrational because it's like, you know, cutting off your arm to spite your face. But how, how do you think the state, and again, it comes through in this book pretty pretty detailed, like, what's the state of interprovincial relations these days? Well, they're awful because you have, um, over the long term, and this is what it's in the chapter we wrote, is that the economy of Canada used to be the old cow. It was exports in the periphery, the West in particular, fed the center that milked the cow and got the benefits. But that was under tariff protection that forced an east-west trade axis. And you can queue up the maritime grievances with the lack of railway and the lack of access to that national economy. And so what Ottawa tended to do was buy off the maritimes with initially development money, DRE type stuff in ARTA. And now they just give us cash to shut us up. So there's no meaningful money coming in to develop this economy federally right now, with the exception of maybe a project like the Atlantic Loop, which solves some other problems for them, including keeping Quebec happy. But when you get out to Alberta, part of the reason we went to the North American Free Trade Agreement was because the National Energy Program and what the federal government did to energy prices in Canada, which cost Alberta an estimated $100 billion in wealth. So when you talk about Western anger, there's sort of a sense where you say, what's the big deal? You're rich. But in their minds, they could have been richer. The economy could have been better. Canada could have been doing better if they just recognized that the energy sector was a source of wealth for the country, not just the region. But by the time we were writing on this around 2010, this strange literature came in called the resource curse. And Ontario believed that Alberta energy causing the exchange rate to go up was resulting in a loss of manufacturing. And it turns out none of that was ever true. Uh, but it was bought into what you would call the Laurentian elites and the Ottawa economists. And so what you wound up with, and this goes back to Tom Crochane, who also has been in favor of shutting down Atlantic Canada uh, to save money for Canada overall, is his point was the Ontario and Quebec economies are the national interest under our new region states. The resource-producing periphery, like the Maritimes in Alberta, they have regional interests, but they can be at odds with the bigger picture, which is we need a thriving Ontario and Quebec with its high-tech knowledge economies and their multinational exporters. And so what we've looked at, and this is where I think the Maritimes have more in common with the West than they understand, is that if Ottawa starts to choke off some of those federal transfers in, you're going to start to feel what the indifference of uh, central Canadians feels like in a harder way. Like Alberta, they feel like it's expropriation, that their wealth is being taken away. They're, if their housing prices collapse, they're going to blame Ottawa just like they did in the 80s. And it's not going to be a simple fix. So I... I also read that metaphor about the cow and the West and the milk and being and being uh, milked in in Ontario. But I thought it insinuated that the Maritimes was what happened with the backside of the cow. I did. So did that, I get that wrong? 
that comes from a Halifax cartoonist back in the day. So the maritime grievance was that if they were getting any part of the old cow, and I think Tommy Douglas coined the original phrase, he's, he said, you can only imagine what it's doing in the Maritimes. And it took the Halifax cartoonist to draw what it was doing in the Mar- <laughs> Maritimes, <laughs> just in case people weren't clear on the metaphor. Yeah, it's not a very pleasant uh, visual image. But the, um, the big point I think you have to think about is when you get into politics, a lot of it's about respect. And one thing we see in Canada right now, whether it's dealing with First Nations issues, nation to nation, dealing with premiers and provinces, we have a federal government that isn't necessarily working with premiers, and they haven't for some time, even with Harper and before. So I don't want to blame the current government. The fact is, Ontario and Quebec do very well with a strong federal government. The, per, the regions do not. And so there's a sense in which now we're actually seeing it's an existential crisis if you're a resource producer because you have a federal government that doesn't really care if you shut down because you're an embarrassment in Davos. Like that's the other side of this is Ontario's embarrassed by resource producing economies. Right. So this argument that Jean Chrétien used to make that we need a strong federal or central government to make sure the Atlantic Atlanta, Canada is taken care of, which was his argument around the time of the Quebec separation. Uh, you're saying that's actually a curse. In fact, what we really need is a more decentralized uh, national economy. Is that fair? Absolutely. Well, of course. Like, Think about things like, why don't we have the rail services coming to our region? And in part, it's because there's all these policies that would be diverting traffic through the port of Montreal rather than the port of Halifax and Port St. John. Why isn't Highway 185 being accelerated for twinning in the post-COVID world? It's still 2025 is when they're talking about doing that. But that's about, I'm trying to remember the number we came up with on GDP loss annually for the region, but call it a billion dollars just lost because Quebec doesn't want to twin 50 kilometers of highway. Why is a province allowed to do that to a region if you have a strong federal government? Why does it make sense to build a tunnel from Labrador and Newfoundland with a new highway down through Quebec City rather than twinning 50 kilometers of highway? Why do we need an Atlantic loop when we've got all kinds of other ways of getting power into the region? Yeah, that was, the federal government now owns Muskrat Falls, from what I can tell. I don't understand the, the driver there, but it seems to me like the federal government is positioning that as a benefit to New Brunswick. I think it's a benefit to Quebec because it gives Quebec another market and the federal government is paying the freight. I mean, Quebec Hydro was prepared to pay $10 billion to get access to the Maritimes 10 years ago. And now the federal government is going to pick up the money to pay for the infrastructure to get hydro, Quebec Hydro into the Maritimes. So funny how things can change over a decade. Um, so your chapter talked about the economic impact of Alberta on the rest of Canada. You, dis- you summarized that a bit here this morning, but I just want you to sort of put a, put a, put a, um, summarize that for us so the economic impact on alberta has been of alberta on the rest of canada has been significant do you think that is fundamentally altered now and it will not play that role moving forward given your comments earlier about 2040 so the it's a tricky thing we are trying to highlight that when people say when alberta booms it doesn't benefit anyone else so what we we're trying to do as a thought experiment was suppose you lost the Alberta economy either through secession or some other means or just really high tariffs. What would that do to the rest of the, the country's economy through the trade channels? And the first thing that sort of came out was Alberta would take a huge hit. It would lose, I think, around 
20 billion in GDP just because it's no longer trading as efficiently with the rest of Canada. It has to trade with the US in places where it can't get goods and services as low cost or effectively. For the rest of Canada, it was 24 billion would be lost, which isn't a huge amount for the Canadian economy. But again, we're, I still don't understand the current world thinking, which is we now think billions aren't worth getting excited about. It's trillions that seem to matter. <laughs> so it's kind of like if you take care of the millions, the billions will take care of themselves. But when we put out a number that the Canadian economy would lose 24 billion people shrug and they go, well, that's only 2% of our GDP. Like 2% of GDP is a small number. So we're dealing with an increasingly enumerate population that doesn't even understand magnitudes because of all those zeros. You're looking at a huge trade impact for the rest of Canada coming through Alberta, and it's not coming through oil and gas. It's coming through things like uh, selling cars in Alberta, selling other goods and wares. We didn't even value the interprovincial migration, all the human capital that's produced in the Maritimes and is booked in Alberta. Uh, what's the value of having a market? Instead of high unemployment in New Brunswick, you have low unemployment, but you don't have the social problems that premiers of the past dealt with. So we've spent a lot of money in New Brunswick getting young people out of here, and Alberta took them, gave them a great living. And so you have to sort of think about all of these dimensions. If you lose that dynamic economy with employment and income, what does that mean for the rest of the country where suddenly we don't have the mobility anymore, we don't have the inter internal trade anymore, and we're going to be even more reliant on a smaller market, which would be Ontario and Quebec? New Brunswick actually sells a lot of goods to Alberta for oil and gas. That was actually part of the diversification strategy of the 1970s, anticipating offshore oil and gas. So we now have manufacturing that serves that industry, but it also serves Alberta. So again, the connections here are pretty tighter than everyone thinks. It's not just we have kids living out there and things like that. We're integrated yeah. with that market. Yeah, and I, I looked at that recently for a client in the building supplies industry, and a lot of the construction materials uh, that are used in Alberta come from the rest of Canada. Windows, doors, lumber, um, you know, metal doors, things like that, paint. All of this stuff is flowing into Alberta from elsewhere. But that is a nice pivot to this idea of boosting international interprovincial trade. This is one of the recommendations made in the book that, that Alberta would be far better off if the borders came down. Uh, I'm not 100% convinced of that. I don't know because my data, the data I've looked at would suggest they import a lot of those manufactured goods. So if the borders come down and they can export more, what are they actually going to export? More what? They already export their agricultural products. They already are a huge export of tourism. Does that mean they're going to build a huge manufacturing sector and export it to the rest of the country? And then they're going to just compete with manufacturing in Ontario and elsewhere in the country. So what is why do Alberta economists believe that boosting interprovincial trade is going to help them more than, you know, allowing their, uh, I don't know, their, um, their craft breweries to be able to export into Atlanta, Canada? I, I have to admit I'm stumped by economists who recommend that because if you look at the Canadian economy up until CUSTA, Canada-U.S. trade agreement and NAFTA, 1988 to 1993, you basically had complete stability in the value of interprovincial trade. It wasn't growing, so there's nowhere to go for the economy if we just stay in our own trade bubble. What was really starting to drive things after NAFTA was exports to the United States in particular. Uh, 
global is an over is an exaggeration because we pivoted towards the United States. Our incomes went through the roof. Everyone was doing terrific. And now we're in a world where everyone starts talking about self-sufficient provinces again. So the reason I don't understand it is someone has to explain to me how globally we're all better off if we all ignore our comparative advantage and specialization. And so instead of having an integrated economy and figuring out the sharing arrangements so that the wealth that's booked in Ontario but created somewhere else can flow back, which is why I'm not opposed to equalization, by the way. I think that we need to fix the formula and fix the way it's done. But the idea of Canada is you have provinces doing what they're really good at, whether it's forestry, oil, or whatever. You have a manufacturing sector in Ontario, but you allow for trade to get the things we need at lowest cost. And that's what's made us rich, not interprovincial trade. And one of the messages we would have from the book is that there is no margin in Canada through interprovincial trade that you can replace NAFTA with the United States. That there is no, so when people say there's this magical economy that's more diversified and sustainable, it is there, but it's not the same income. You're talking about giving up some of the risk and reward that comes with the trading economy and going to a much more stable, self-sufficient thing. But don't talk to me about having uh, 1 million New Brunswickers if you're going to do that. Tell me how it's going to work with 500,000. Because that's we have to look at what's the carrying capacity of our own resource base for our own needs. And there's no scale economies in that world either. And we're going to see this with food self-sufficiency. It sounds wonderful, but there's a reason we're importing most of our meat. Yeah, that's right. Although I do like the idea of some of that stuff on the margin because it's kind of, um, you know, people like the idea of local food or 100-mile diet or whatever. And if they're prepared to pay a little more for that, I think there's some almost uh, tourism or, or quality of life, perceived quality of life benefits among young people like Matt. So rich pay people. pay a little more for local. Rich people like those things. When you don't have a lot of income, you don't worry about where that food comes from. And so part of what we're dealing with is our policy is being guided by the affluence of the middle class in Canada. And we have completely forgotten that there's a large portion of our population with living in poverty that do not worry about, did my rutabaga come from the next door neighbor? Or did it come from Texas or someplace? All that matters is, can I get food? And my concern as we head into a recession is that we're so worried about uh, do we have good potpourri available uh, to keep our houses fresh that our concerns are about to be much more, can I afford a house? Uh, if you look at the weakness in the housing market in Canada right now, I think there's we should be ringing at least one alarm bell to say people need to start getting their books in order just in case things take a turn when the federal government can't continue to pay COVID relief at the rate it's doing now. Like, there's more stories coming in about businesses just hanging on, but if they have to go through another lockdown, we may see another wave just saying it's just not worth it. And there is a story out of Alberta on CBC profiling three businesses that basically explain that's what they went through, is they just didn't think it was worth trying to hang on anymore. It's been five years waiting for recovery and then COVID hit and they just kind of threw their hands up and said, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And yeah, we've just, you know, we've discussed the challenges of the business community, but I think when it comes to residents, one of the issues with Canada is that we assume the government's going to be there. It's a backstop. It pays our health care. It pays our education. It, it, you know, public pensions are higher than they'd be maybe in the U.S. So I don't think we're as worried about any kind of cataclysmic event because we think the feds are always going to be there to back us up. 
Yeah, no, it's it's kind of like a new faith that people have taken on. So you will be taking care my, of look, <laughs> my, my parents. They're in their 80s, and they tell me every time they go to the bank now, there's another check in there from Justin Trudeau. And and they're telling me, look, we're never voting for Justin Trudeau, so I don't know how many checks he's going to put. They, I, I think they said their their bank account went from 2000 to 5000 and they didn't know where the money came from. And then when they looked, it was government of Canada, government of Canada. So, so, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting phase. Like I don't want to criticize what happened with COVID in the early months. I think that when you're going to lock down an economy, that's what you want the government doing. The, the debate that we're all mired in now is how long should they be doing this and how long until they start relying on a business sector and exports through things that you're good at, like a forest sector, like energy, building the infrastructure to get things to market, when are you going to start doing that stuff again? And that's the frustration I think right now is we're about to go through a massive election cycle in Canada, local government, federal government, a bunch of other provinces. Each time there's an election, we're sort of holding off six months until we get back to business. And so that's the part that scares me is we're so busy shuffling deck chairs and, uh, pretending is this the time to go out on a federal election that something bad is going to hit and they're going to be out on the campaign trail promising us more checks that we know they can't uh, write. So this is where I just think there's a lot of delusion in the political level now about there's a serious problem in Nova Scotia with the lobster fishery. They've got a pandemic going on and they're still trying to figure out how do they handle the wee scandal. So if you look at it right now, it's just we're lucky we've got some businesses on autopilot or people figuring it out because there's no political leadership in Canada right now looking after the long-run economy. And that's yeah, the Alberta the, frustration that's coming in. Yeah, and I think the First Nation challenge in the in Nova Scotia and actually across Canada is one I'd like to have discussed on this podcast because it is a challenge because they do have the right uh, – to have a fishery, right? Uh, an actual commercial fishery. It's been upheld by the court, but there are, the court also clarified that, that there has to be parameters put around that. It can't be open-ended. So you'd think they'd be able to come to some sort of negotiated settlement. But uh, one of the things I've always said about Maritimers, and I actually get in trouble when I say it, is we're the nicest people until we're not. And if you get us angry, then there's cars burning and tipped over in the streets. And if you go after EI or you hit one of our sacred cows, we're not very nice. And we can be very angry. And listening to the protests down there, it's it, it it's quite uh, noxious. And hopefully the federal government and the RCMP will at least stabilize things. And then hopefully they'll get a negotiated solution because that's, that's, that's ridiculous. You do not want to see that. That's being covered in international media. Uh, and it's a black eye for Canada. But if you think about, if you had to rate the priorities of government, so you have the general economy, you have the COVID pandemic, and now you have this property rights, where would you rank that in terms of priority for this government? It has to be right now, right near the top, because you can't even deal with the pandemic now if you're going to have all this other unrest, which is what happened to the U.S. around Black Lives Matter. And so when you look at what's happening, we need incredibly strong focus of leadership on tackling these big issues. And this, the fishing rights issue has not come out of the blue. This has been festering for years. And so the frustration we should all have is how did it get to this point? How did they come out and not know how to define a moderate income or whatever generic term they used? And so (laughs) that's, I think, the challenge that comes in. So now you have a book from Alberta saying we're angry and we're thinking about leaving. 
And all they get back is people ridiculing them saying, where are you going to go? It's not like you can move a province. But you got to remember, there's a lot of people living just south of that border in Montana, and they're not real law respecters anyway. So it wouldn't be hard to have a region of Cascadia, which was being pitched in the 90s. I think you guys had one here called uh, what was Atlantica. It? Atlantica. So if you yeah. go back to that era, we're kind of looking at that uh, reemergence of the region states again. Where again, but that was coming in the past through a weak federal government. Now what we're looking at is a reasserting strong federal government. Yeah, but I anyway, I, I always was suspect of that because it was basically the poor combining with the poor because Atlantic didn't extend into Massachusetts and beyond. It was just Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. So it's basically the poor plus the poor equals what? More poor. Um so just wrapping up here in the next few minutes, I, d I do have a couple other things I want to get to because I think it's important. One is this issue of Alberta somehow teaming up with Atlantic Canada uh, in terms of more influence around federal policy or essentially trying to balance more the Ontario and Quebec um, uh, dominance in the federal government. I think most people agree that policies are basically emanate out of Ontario and Quebec, right? I mean, that the, my famous example is the huge multi-billion dollar fund for public transportation that the federal government just said, okay, every province gets their share. Well, we didn't need public transportation. We needed money for other stuff. So you had cities running around buying new buses and trying to figure out public transportation's expending, right? Or even, I think you and I talked about this at one point in the past, this issue of infrastructure for post-secondary education. There was a huge fund for that when the when the Trudeau government first came in. And my issue was we need, actually need more students. We don't need necessarily more buildings. It's not that I don't like more buildings, but you know, it was a it was a response to the demand of Ontario universities and then applied nationally. So what it, what is this uh, idea of Alberta and the West teaming up with Atlantic Canada? Does that have any kind of salience at all? Well, it does on things. We saw it with carbon pricing, and it wasn't just you had premiers of the same color stripe involved in that. It was really more the resource-based exporting manufacturing economies were all facing the same kind of pressures uh, from a carbon price that Ontario and Quebec didn't face to the same degree. Ontario, we were sheltering commuters from paying the full price of the uh the carbon tax. So there's been an idea that the regions would then band together around common interests that way. Another one that colleagues are trying to push for that came out briefly, Andrew, because Andrew Shear endorsed it's made it hard to continue on, but the Northern Corridor project is basically a pre-negotiated right away for infrastructure projects across the country, including First Nations uh, participation. And so my colleagues at the University of Calgary are trying to get some traction in New Brunswick to join on in the study of this kind of um, Northern Corridor project. But I don't get a strong sense that the government here is necessarily jumping at those kinds of opportunities. And it's often thought of as just Energy East again, but it's much bigger than that. And the one warning I'd give you is that the way the map's currently drawn is the corridor would go to Newfoundland and Labrador bypassing the Maritimes. And so there's a sense in which there's a national interest in these transcontinental projects, whether it's highways, rail, uh, electricity, delivering these things. But we can't build these projects right now in Canada because one protest stops it. So the, if you think about the common interest, 
we could have this kind of corridor project as one that starts off trying to resolve some of these issues to get more interprovincial trade, which is always good. It's not going to replace international, but we should always be thinking about how we can do more of the wealth creating things. And my main concern about when we talk about this Western Eastern Alliance, it can't just be a hatred of central government policy. You also have to remember that there's so many expat maritimers in Alberta right now that most of the people with whom there's common interest are already living out there. Uh, so <laughs> there may the group that's still here, which typically does not seem to like natural gas, does not like oil, uh, sees a very different economy. They may not have enough in common with Alberta for that to be a realistic option. We forget that one of the implications of population aging and demographic change throughout migration and in-migration is the culture of the Maritimes is shifting with population aging. That this is not the same population that voted for Frank McKenna. This is a, a, a population that has different values and has different futures in mind for the Maritimes and how it'll all work. And I think that's where you and I have both been sort of bumping into a wall that this sort of wealth created economic driven uh, well-being isn't seen as necessary anymore when you have a strong federal government that looks after us. Yeah. And I think that's, that sort of becomes very uh, obvious when you read those historical books about the fifties and sixties, and you've recently wrote something on that as well. I mean, there was a real need for the politicians to go into Bathurst and, and announce a big new mine or go into Dorchester and announce a new chemical park or go into Grand Falls and announce a big new energy project. There just seemed to be a more of an urgency around economic development in the in the 60s and 70s and 80s and even 90s than there is today. And I think, don't get me wrong, if you look at all of the manifestos that po political parties put out, they talk about the economy. But it's one thing to say, yeah, we need a strong economy. We need it. Da, da, da. It's another thing to actually be going into these communities and and deliberately trying to do things to grow those economies. And we're not seeing that. And maybe that's not a good thing. I mean, I I don't know that you need to build industrial parks willy nilly to try and encourage development. But I do think that in the modern time, you're right that the, the demographics of the population are such that the real drivers are healthcare. The real drivers are other issues. And in fact, it may lead to hostility among some part of the population uh, for uh, extractive industries or industries that have environmental impacts. And that's an issue that you and I have debated and discussed and will continue to do so because I think we, you know, we're, we are a natural resource based economy. And if we squeeze out the natural resources, what's left, right? It's, it's, uh, it's not, the, it's not an either or you want to have urban growth. You want to have new economy growth. You want to have, remote workers and everything we've talked about, more tourism maybe, but to just say, well, we don't want mining anymore or we don't want uh, oil and gas anymore, or we don't want whatever, it, I think is more problematic. I did want to ask you though, is don't you think part of the problem is this un, you know, uncertainty around the time horizon for oil and gas? And maybe there's no way to pin that down, but if you were able to say, look, greenies, and I use that term uh, you know, very... Uh, uh, in a very positive way. Uh, we, 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 we hear you, but we also know we can't, you know, we can't just leave the global markets to other suppliers. So we're going to, we're going to literally work very hard to reduce our carbon footprint here. Uh, and as the market for oil globally starts to wind down into the twenties and forties and fifties, we will wind down as well. And we believe by X date, there will be very little oil and gas production in the country. Do you think that would solve some of that concern or do you think there's just this, 
leave it in the ground movement that you're never going to change people's minds? Well, I think that you have a leave it in the ground uh, movement, which is dominating. But New Brunswick has lived this the same experience around 2006 when pulp and paper was seriously on the ropes and three major mills closed. The province made a decision to try and keep the remaining mills going. And they had to do it because the decision was made, no more advantage to big industry coming from low power rates. You're going to have to subsidize them directly through government coffers because, as you pointed out, NB Power didn't have a mandate to uh, subsidize industrialization. So then we start to see big tax concessions coming into mills to keep them operating. The, obviously, the assessed value of a mill is going to come down because the industry is in decline, so no one else is going to want to take it over. The market value is lower. Then you start to see direct cash incentives being paid to keep the mills operating. So around 2013, when things are looking really grim and the value of pulp and paper has declined, you get pronouncements that pulp and paper is dead. It will never be in the province again. It's not worth it. And then today, the value of that industry is exactly what it was at the peak in 2006. So in 2013, is this an industry where we should have said, leave the trees standing, let pulp and paper go? Or has it come back and do we now recognize that if there was better access to fiber, better transportation costs and more effective uh, power pricing, we could actually be exporting even more. When you look at what they've been able to do in these companies, moving up the value chain, finding new markets, raising their productivity, like it is a sector with productivity growth in advance. And so when we talk about oil and gas, you're really asking the same question that there may, there's a declining market, sure. But geography matters, where you're going to ship this stuff to, who's the refiner you're contracting with. And this is where there's a bit of arrogance right now in the lay population that we think we understand the complexities of a major multinational vertically integrated industry better than the people running it. And so if you think about it, if they show an interest in your refinery, say, and come by chance, or if they're interested in exploiting or developing or exploring your oil and gas resources, why are you second guessing it? You can make a decision that you don't want to give them a tax concession because you don't think that's worth it. But what I don't understand is why we want to kill this stuff before we even know what the deal is on the table or what the capacity is, say, to do a greener. So why does Alberta and Saskatchewan want SMRs? Because they think they can green up the oil sands production. Why does Newfoundland want Muskrat Falls? Because they can believe they can green the offshore production of oil. They're still producing oil. They're just doing it cleaner and greener. And isn't some of the bargain, if you can reduce the emissions, that's a good thing. But we've changed the mission to being no emissions. And so that means oil is now in a different situation where a sizable part of our population says there is no condition under which you can exploit this resource. So that's your ultimate conclusion that you can't sort of meet people in the middle on this or maybe some people, but a large share of the Canadian population is, is there's no compromise there. There's a, there's always been groups that have never had been able to compromise or go to the middle, but we've always had governments that decided that it was their job because when they were worried about things like the economy and jobs and well-being, that they had to make a decision and darn the torpedoes, they'll let the chips fall where they have to. But they sort of saw that their job as a government was to lead and make decisions. What we see today is that, the extremes on left and right have the power to block 
projects generally. And so you wind up with, this is what is often referred to as the failure of leadership. No one will make a decision to disturb the status quo if they sense there's too much heat. And so again, what tends to break these things open is a recession because we're complacent, everything's fine. Why would we go through the hassle of developing a resource or changing our forest policy to give more access to fiber from crown land over private land? If I even suggest yeah, but that, I mean, come on, Herb, after, you know, after you've had your bypass surgery for your, that's not when to start eating right. I mean, you should have started years ago, right? So I, I think, you know, arguing that we need a massive recession to try and get people to put their priorities straight. I understand that that is a time that people start to think that way, but there's got to be a, a better way than, than sort of, you know, waiting until the patient's actually on the slab you know, to say, okay, maybe you should start thinking about eating right. So here's my challenge to you. If you can identify a major positive shift in a provincial or Canadian economy that hasn't come from economic crisis, I'd be willing to hear it. But if you go back, you'll find most of the major benefits we have today were decisions and policies that were coming out of a major crisis like the Depression of the 30s, post-war reconstruction, uh, <clears throat> the NAFTA was a crisis of the 1970s stagflation, a whole bunch of things. They all come out of problems. They don't come out of when things are good and we have resources to do it in the best way possible. They come out of necessity because of the politics. <clears throat> in my oh, opinion. It, <laughs> so then it eventually comes back to Bruce Coburn. The trouble with normal is it always gets worse. You can't have a good economy for a period of time there's atrophy will set in something you're either hit, you're either moving forward or you're moving backwards uh, and maybe we do need a crisis but i think that's going to have to be the herb emery thesis because i i still like to think we can do the right things without some massive catastrophe to drive us to do the right things but uh so i, I, we'll see. I wish you were right because we spent a lot of time working on healthcare reform to do just that laying out what are the options to go forward and what we're looking at today is that all of that work was for nothing. Like people are now trying to redo all the health reform studies that have been going on for 30 years. And they keep coming up with the same conclusions rather than taking action and going back and saying, we knew in 1990 how to make this system better. But they don't do it because there's no need to do it. And every time that the federal government gives us a bigger Canada health transfer, it just kicks the can down the road. It's um, it's a really frustrating situation because it leads to this perverse outcome where I'm seen as someone who says, unless you're really hurt, you're not going to change. But, but I want to be why, proven wrong. But why can't we just talk this stuff through? I think that's part of the problem. Like if you if you can't convince somebody of the need for change and you just wait for some massive catastrophe, like what about what about an idea where you put Herb Emery in every living room? across the 335,000 households in New Brunswick for an evening. So that means the next 218 years of your life, every evening you'd be in somebody's uh, <laughs> living room talking and just having a dialogue, explaining the issues. And maybe it's not you or me. Maybe it's somebody that knows actually. Maybe it's like uh, FDR, right? Maybe it's fireside chats. But it seems to me that that part of the problem is we're just not doing a good enough job of talking to people you know, you and I talked about this around Turning Point, right? That one of the big outcomes was, well, we don't want growth anymore. So somebody hasn't actually explained to people what the alternative is. So if you have no growth in New Brunswick for an extended period of time, no economic growth or even decline, and you get the federal government cracking down on transfers, 
what does that look like? And are you prepared to accept that? So there's not this kind of conversation going on right now. It is among the beanies, right? Among people like us, maybe, but among the general public. So isn't this partly just a communications challenge? No, I don't think it's a communications challenge at all, because I think what our, when we come in and like I'll make myself guilty of this you know, because I used to believe it was just a matter of facts, figures, and education. And if we just had a common understanding of what the situation was, then we could have a discussion about what the solution is. And when I moved to New Brunswick in 2016, there was a ton of that thinking going on with some of the innovation, social innovation, policy innovation meetings that were going on. What we all failed to recognize is that Change involves winners and losers, and depending on which side of that equation you're on, you're going to be open to the message or you're going to be closed to it. So if, I, if I'm in a university and I'm making a good pay, there's declining enrollment, we now have COVID, there's going to be a budget deficit. Should it be borne by professors taking lower pay for a while to balance the books, or should we charge students more? So... Facts and figures, there's going to be a hole in the deficit. Who should pay for it? <laughs> That's not an issue about just information anymore. This is about who are you going to hurt and who are you going to help? Okay, so we now have the subject of our next conversation, Herb, because I think my view of that now is distribute, distribute the pain. So when I was in government, uh, there was polling done that said, do you want, what, what kind of changes do you want, right? We had a deficit we had to slay. What do you want? Do you want to raise taxes? Do you want to cut your hospital? Do you want to, you know, what do you want? And overwhelmingly, New Brunswickers said, raise my taxes rather than cut my hospital or cut my clinic or cut my whatever, because those were perceived as winner and loser, as you just said. So why does, why do you have to close the Sackville hospital, but not the whatever hospital? Uh, whereas the tax was seem to impact everybody. So yes, everybody's going to have to pay more. So I think one of the solutions there has to be distribute, distributing the pain. If it comes down to does the student pay or does the professor pay, then it's just going to be a battle of wills and a battle of power. Whereas at the end of the day, if you find some solution where everybody sort of has to pony up to, to help pay for the solution, nobody's happy, but nobody feels like they've been aggrieved because everybody has to bear the pain. So I don't know if, if we're going to be able to. Well, remember that. that one of the most popular policy proposals in New Brunswick is higher taxes on business. There's constantly someone wants to go after the property tax of business. They want to go after machinery equipment. So there's this kind of view that we have the capacity to generate more tax from someone else. It's never about. It's never about. Uh, I, listen, I, I hate to keep bringing back Bruce Coburn quotes from the seventies, <laughs> but Bruce says everybody likes to see justice done. Dot 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 on somebody else. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. Everybody likes higher taxes on somebody else, but if you can share the pain and if everybody pays a little bit, if everybody has skin in the game, maybe you're better off. Listen, this has been an, an amazing conversation. I really appreciate every time you come on. I think there's a lot of meat here in this conversation for people to chew on. I would just like to say, if people want to get this book, Moment of Truth, uh, Herb Emery is a, a, a contributing author to this book. You can get it at Indigo or anywhere you buy your books. You know, it's it. There's a lot of grievance in there. I have to say that you know, lots of Alberta's been harmed by everybody else, but I think there's a lot of truth to it too. So we can't just dismiss Alberta. And I think a lot of the original media reaction to this book, Herb, I think you insinuated that earlier. But when I read about it in the media, it was quite sort of dismissive. Oh, here comes Alberta again. And I don't think that's the way to do it, right? That's, you know, if you're dismissing these legitimate concerns, 
whether it's Alberta or whether it's New Brunswick, it doesn't matter, Newfoundland and Labrador, at the end of the day, you know, you've got provincial governments, you've got provincial economies and provincial populations. Uh, and these issues are impacting specifically in local communities. So I think uh, this book is for everybody that wants to understand what the what the what the issues are right now uh, in Alberta. And so a last question for you before we wrap it up is what are you working on now? You've you're like uh, I used to say that, uh, you know, you were the Ron Jeremy of, of uh, at the academic <laughs> world, but I can't say that anymore because apparently he's been in, indicted for some other things. So let's just say you're the hardest working guy in e- academia it's, these days. So the two big things we're trying to get done this fall is we have a, a very lengthy survey of manufacturers to determine their technological maturity so that we can get a better understanding of uh, avenues by which we could promote more automation, digitalization of production as a competitive advantage. The early returns we've had from some of the larger ones, larger companies have been quite impressive. We actually have what I would call world-leading manufacturers. And so we're trying now to reach the medium and smalls, which are larger in number. The second piece we're working on is an ease of doing business index that the World Bank developed to create a measure of regulatory burden. And we're trying to determine we would be the second province in Canada to have that index uh, prepared, which would allow us to be compared internationally to about 200 other nations and subnational governments. So far, I'll say if our difficulty finding people to complete our questionnaires is any indication of the ease of doing business, we're not in a happy place in New Brunswick right now. Uh, we're learning a lot about the challenges of setting up a business in New Brunswick just by how busy the professionals in the practicing professionals are, just how complicated some of the issues are around federal provincial jurisdiction on things like paying taxes. And just some people just don't know what the answer to these questions are that other jurisdictions know the answers to. So if anyone wants to help us, you can reach me at UNB and we'd be happy to pick your brain. I'm always happy to be proven wrong. So if any statements offended you, then show me I'm wrong. Don't just yell at me. (laughs) <laughs> listen uh, are you still having fun you've been in the job now four years are you still having fun yeah it's been a crazy four years it's been busy but uh this is a fascinating economy to study it's a microcosm of the rest of the country and it's a canary in the coal mine in a lot of ways so we're getting a lot of latitude out of it the hard part is getting your work known outside of the region once you're here and focusing because Again, the Globe and Mail, I think, sends a reporter once a year just to check in on the place. But uh, we're getting in the National Post and sometimes the Globe and Mail. So we'll get out there and sort of raise awareness and hopefully amplify some of Donald Savoie's great work as well. All right. Well, thanks for your time this morning. Anytime, David. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George. Is engineered by the great Zachary Peltier is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.